Support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who wants to go back to a more innocent time when Googling yourself sounded dirty. In my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Sridhar Ramaswani, the longtime former Googler who was the senior vice president of ads and commerce when he left in 2018. In other words, he was the guy in charge of the team that made all the money. But he left because he felt those ads and the pressure to grow were making the Google product worse. And now he's getting ready to launch a new search engine called Neva that will show no ads, collect no user data, and charge users a monthly subscription fee. Sridhar, welcome to Recode Decode. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So we've known each other a very long time. We've, we've talked many, many times over the years about um, Google and everything else. So I love what, what I think would be great is that people understand your background because it's you're sort of like one of the techies of Silicon Valley. But give people an idea of how you got to Google and then we'll get into Neva and what you've been doing there. Cool. I consider myself a computer scientist and software engineer first. I have an academic background, got a PhD from Brown out on the East Coast, uh, spent five years in research labs in New Jersey, including the fabled Bell Labs. This was toward the end of, I may have just interrupted, it was toward the end. Explain what Bell Labs are for people, regular people. It was the Yeah, it was the research arm of what was originally AT&T. When I joined, it had uh, split off and become Lucent. Uh, This was the fabled place where the transistor was invented, where Unix came to be. A lot of things that we take for granted in tech today um, happened happened in Bell Labs. I was there for two years, moved to the Valley in 99, was part of a startup that went through a true dot-com boom and bust. Joined Google in 03 as an engineer. Uh, Funny story, I was sent to the ads team because my first boss, this guy called Mike Frumkin, found the word database in my resume and said, aha, ads have databases. Uh, Sridhar should go work in ads. Um, it was an amazing opportunity. Well, why did you go to Google? What startup were you at? What was the startup that you had been the at? The name of the startup was Epiphany. Oh, um, yeah, of it did, yeah. yeah, yeah, I did customer relationship management software. Um, it, was a, it was a hard ride. Uh, and uh, it was very clear that growing that business was going to be hard. I had some friends who were at Google. Um, and even then, it was clear that this was going to be an amazing company. And if you look back, Google made $1.5 billion in revenue in the fifth year of its existence. Mm-hmm. Um, that was remarkable. Um, so anyway, I joined the search ads team and there was crazy growth. So I got these incredible opportunities in like four or five years. I was leading search ads, um, which made most of the revenue for uh, for Google. Mm-hmm. Got more and more amazing opportunities along the way. Got on Larry's staff in 2013 running ads together with uh, Susan Wojcicki, and then was running it by myself in 2014 when Susan went over to run uh, YouTube. Spent five more years there before deciding that I needed to reinvent myself. Um, that's when I left, and yeah. in some months after that started Neva. All right, let me talk a little bit about the early days of Google. Can you g- give a sense of people? I remember many of your headquarters. There's one Oh, I forget the addresses, but they were small, different places. And I went to all kinds of things. Talk a little about the early days of search. I think it's really pertinent to what you're talking about here, what Google was thinking about. Talk about the way it was. I mean, I remember it being crazy. I remember it being 
fast moving, but at the same time, it was moving into a territory that wasn't people didn't think would make a lot of money, and things changed obviously when ad when ad search happened. So, talk a little bit about that when they bought um, they bought several companies, but it was it was sort of a touch and go situation at the very beginning, despite the growth. That's right. So when I joined, I think the ads team had less than fifty people. Um, the backend infrastructure team and quality teams, which are just beginning to get going, were about 20 people. So it was a pretty tiny team. People don't remember that Google went through a lot of uh, uh, changes, even when it comes to advertising. They tried essentially the equivalent of uh, you know selling search ads like display ads for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this model, uh, AdWords, of paper, uh, pay-per-click auction, was just beginning to get going in earnest when I uh, when I joined, and this brilliant combination of both advertisers deciding how much they wanted to pay um, and Google then looking at ads and saying what's the likely value that these are going to give for users. This combination of revenue and quality was the magic sauce that really propelled Google Ads revenue. And uh, it was and it was truly crazy. Of, uh, I'm blanking on the company. The company they bought they bought a company very early on that got them into this business. Really, it might have been Applied Semantics. Yeah. I could mm-hmm. be getting the name wrong. That's right. That's right. That was what launched AdSense again in 2003. And then AdWords after that. Um, so talk what, what when you think about early Google, the concept was really just search. It was not necessarily a business attached to it. it was the idea to search the, the, the whole web, essentially. And it, and, and it had been dominated at the time by Yahoo, really, and other companies that were not really doing it in an algorithmic way. They, were, they, had, uh, they had actual searchers. They had people that would place the people in a direct pe- companies and sites and things like that in a directory. So it was a very different conceptual idea. It was to actually find things. To me, that, that was the brilliance of Google. That was PageRank. Um, that was really using the entire power of the web to decide what was relevant for a particular query. It was a revolutionary idea then, I think. Uh, It's a revolutionary idea now. Um, That quality is sort of determined by this kind of popularity. And ads back then also had a lot of focus on on the user. Uh, We made sure that the formats were uh, unobtrusive. Um, and that they uh, were very relevant to the search queries. So early Google was very simple. Early Google was very user-focused, and clearly it paid off in a big way. Mm-hmm. And so when you started to get in that, uh, you, one of the biggest purchases obviously was DoubleClick. Um, I think that was 2007, but Seven. that was somewhat later. How did the thinking evolve of what you what Google's business was? Because I remember in the early days also wandering around with Larry Page, and he was very interested in search on television. He had a room full of televisions that he was testing stuff on. They had all kinds of stuff. So what was the, the, the you know, a lot of people's businesses like Amazon and others, they don't stray, but they move outward from what they were supposed to be doing, essentially. How did you look at sort of the evolution of what occurred there, you know, before they got into anything else that they are, of the many, many things they were doing? So the rough thinking uh, at the time was that, yes, search advertising was big and it was growing a lot. But there was this other world of display advertising, both on the internet and obviously advertising on TV. And with things like YouTube, there was clearly a hypothesis that more and more of our video consumption was going to go online. And so DoubleClick was really a big effort on Google's part to provide advertising off Google. And, uh, you know, it started with websites, it started with display advertising. And there are a number of efforts that went into other things like uh, um, audio ads, radio ads, um, print ads. So there's a lot of experimentation back then. But the idea was to be wherever advertisers were in terms of how they were spending dollars. Um, and the belief was that we would be creating a, a, a team and system that could sort of look at advertiser needs holistically um, and be able to serve them. 
and to serve them either on or off Google. That's the other that's concept right. that right. it was anywhere else. So when you think about the idea of what was happening as you as you moved into the, the, the ad area, one of the issues is, of course, collecting of data and the use of data, um, which is what, what goes into what's happening at Neva. How do you think that transitioned at Google? I don't want to like load a lot of people. I want to get into the idea of privacy and, and what you're trying to to push there at Neva, but what is the, what was the mentality about privacy? I recall it was like any piece of information we'll take, and it didn't matter what it was. It was it was sort of a, you know, initially people all are thinking it's sort of a rapacious information borg, but actually it was a very different conceptual idea is that you had to have it to make it better. Like it was, it sort of morphed into something else. Um, but the concept was the more information you have, the better, the better you could serve, the better products you could make, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, a recurrent theme here, and you've made this in many of your other podcasts, mm-hmm. is that decisions, small decisions mm-hmm. that look perfectly fine at the time you make them can still lead to outcomes that are quite a bit different from how you exactly. imagine them. To me, advertising and data is a classic example of this. At first, Advertisers on even search ads, for example, would send back conversion information uh, to Google. What I mean by that is you clicked on an ad for, I don't know, a standing desk or a headphone, and then you went and bought it on the site. That information was reported back to Google with the first intention of just creating better reports. Hey, wouldn't it be nice to have a report where you saw the number of clicks, the amount of money you spent on it, and how many conversions you've had? Um, Similarly, with third-party cookies, the intent very much was that if we know more about what a user did, then we would be able to serve them more useful ads. Mm -hmm. Perfectly reasonable concepts to start with, but then you drive a million people and a million decisions off of these, you sort of end up in a situation where our information is slashing around everywhere. Mm -hmm. You go to many reputable sites on the internet today, and you're dumbfounded by the number of people that want to look at what you're doing. This, this whole concept of, say, like you're reading a book in your living room, which you can reasonably say no one else has a business to know that you're doing it, such a thing doesn't exist on the internet anymore. And we got to this place making a set of decisions, each of which were perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, a lot of why I wanted to start at Neva were to start with a different set of principles that hopefully would lead to a very different outcome. Mm-hmm. It's so wh- taking all the learnings and saying, hey, how can that affect product design? So when you talk about this sort of step into things, does it not, it, one of the arguments being made by a lot of people, including regulators, is that the way it has progressed, which is, you know, constant information grabbing from people or, or whatever, or ever, any activity, it's the business plan and it has no other way to go. It, that, that, that this should have been anticipated. And of course, it begs the question was, Sridhar, you were there. You know what I mean? You didn't, you knew what you were doing kind of thing. And I think everybody else is, it's an issue I've been arguing with Facebook people all the time. It's like, you know what you're doing, you know what's happening. You see, and they have sort of reasonable explanations throughout. So talk a little bit like what it's like to be inside of a company when that's happening, where you know what you're doing and you know where it's led. And What do you do? Because that is the business. Well, it's important to know that in search ads or in ads in general, there are a lot of incredibly thoughtful people that Mm -hmm. worked on these problems, many of whom are still there at Google, many of whom have left. And there is very much an element of self-restraint and sort of doing right for users that has gone into a lot of decisions. We walked away completely from porn advertising about six years ago because we were like, this is not a great business for us to be in. Similarly, when there were issues around rehab ads, I was the one that pulled the trigger and said, you know, we should not accept any rehab ads until we know who the good players are and, you know, who the scamsters are in the business. And we also had really long and tortured and important discussions, for example, around should Google data ever be used for serving ads off of Google? Some of this has been written about, but these were all important um, discussions and decisions. Explain why that's diff- why what the, what the debate there was, because that's an important debate. So there were a lot of us who felt that search history, for example, um, was incredibly personal. And you and I will totally agree. It's one of the founding theses of Neva. 
It's a very personal product. It's a very important product. It is a mirror onto ourselves in a way that's quite unimaginable. Mm -hmm. And so we were very particular that this search history not be used for ads targeting, say, on the display network. And so this was a big and important debate. But there are always competitive pressures. Um, another example of a product um, that we spent a lot of time discussing um, was remarketing ads. Should your behavior off of Google, the fact that you went to some site, be used to tailor ads for you on Google? Um, this went through a lot, an incredible amount of, uh, of, of debate. But there are also competitive pressures. Facebook was doing this very aggressively. That mm -hmm. plays into the calculus that goes on. Um, but I would say the larger uh, effect here is the thing that I mentioned earlier of you can make perfectly good decisions mm -hmm. and still end up at a place where you can conclude that this is not the right outcome in some, some general sense of what right outcomes should be. All right. When you think about right outcomes, well, how, who decides that? And you're going to get to decide this at Neva, which we'll talk about in the next section. But when these debates happen... Do competitive pressures always win within these companies? That who decides this? How does it get to a decision? I mean, you know, it's the it's the leadership team. It's mm -hmm. the it's the it's the think tank. The senior engineers have a lot of say. The senior product managers have a lot of say in how these decisions get made, um, and people you know try to make them very very thoughtfully. For example, for some of the policy decisions about what ads to accept and what ads to not accept. Um, you know, as you can imagine, things are not at all easy. With political ads, you can say maybe one answer is that, you know, there are no political ads. But it, perfectly reasonable people will say, wait, you are denying a voice for the underdog. Mm -hmm. um, and so these truly tend to be difficult questions um, that go through a lot of soul searching, um, certainly within Google, within my team. Right. So when you, this is the last question I want to ask about you being there, was was when you're doing this years ago, when that you were, I don't know if you remember, you were probably around when they were deciding whether to take over Yahoo search, for example, um, if you remember those days, and then they were stopped by the government. Um, uh, one of the pieces I wrote was that they couldn't have 90 some percent of the search market. That It would have wanted them into a number in the U.S. that was so massive. It was, they were, it was already massive, but this would be massiver, I guess. And I, I wrote something like, at, at least Microsoft, it was kind of an offhand remark. It was meant to be obnoxious, I think. I meant it to be obnoxious, which was, at least Microsoft knew they were thugs. You know what I mean? And I, I called them thugs. And so I got a call from, I think it was Larry. Uh, it probably was, because Sergey never cared. Um, but, uh, and he said, we're not thugs. Like, what are you talking about? How could you call us that? And I said, I don't believe you even think you could even try to do this. Like, what goes into your brain that you try to do this? And he said, we're good people. I re I'll never forget it. He said, we're good people. We would never do anything wrong. He said, the ab ability to abuse people's lives because of this personal search history, which I want to get into what you're doing at Neva, is a tremendous power over lots of different ways. And we had this long talk and he said, well, we're good people. And he kept saying, we're good people. And I said, what if good people didn't run Google? What then? Like, it was sort of like they never occurred within the company that possibly this could be abused in a way that is problematic for humanity. You know what I mean? So do, do, when you're in there, when you're making decisions, do you think you all think how powerful you are? Because one of the things I had the takeaway from was that you all don't understand how powerful you are. You don't, or you don't appreciate it or something like that. I'm not really clear what what was why that was not a nothing I would worry about. I do think these things are hard for people to understand. Just how I think about the world today mm -hmm. compared to how I, would, how I would have thought about the world three years ago mm -hmm. is just different. And uh, especially if you're someone who has seen. Uh, growth all along the way from when mm -hmm. you're an underdog sure. to when you're this massive company, I think you tend to vastly underestimate your power. I honestly right. think that's human nature. And my answer to some of this is we need diversity of thought. We need diversity of opinion. We need a diversity of product for especially important functions. Um, so this, again, was one of the reasons why uh, you know, I deliberately set out to create Neva with a dramatically different set of principles. Um, and there's reason for these principles, and we'll get into that in a minute. But to me, this diversity of thinking is really critical um, for our success as, as, as a democracy. 
All right, we're here with Sridhar Ramaswani. He's the co-founder of Neve. He's a former top Google executive who was made all the money for them, essentially. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this to talk about his new company. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try, explore, connect, pivot, transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. We're here with Sridhar Ramaswamy, the co-founder of Neve. He's a former top Google executive who was in charge of what made all the money there. Sridhar was just talking about his time at Google. So what broke for you? What 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 got you to leave Google and then you moved on to Greylock and, and to decide to do this? What was the thing that pushed you over the edge? I had reading about all kinds of reasons you did. Tell us what happened for you. At one level, the reason was that I had been there for very long. 15 yeah. years is a very long time to spend at any place, um, especially for someone um, like me that you know tries to see the positives and negatives of situations. I wanted mm-hmm. a change. But in many, many ways, the issues that we faced with uh, YouTube monetization in 2017, starting first with the presence of objectionable content and then a set of essentially unsolvable problems at the time around what content was okay to monetize was what made me decide that I just needed a clean break and I needed to start something over. Why unsolvable? Explain, this is putting objectionable content like child pornography and it gets it gets monetized or, or almost anything. There, there's a, there was just a controversy around a YouTuber who was doing something to a young, you know, making a joke about a young girl, things like that. And to demonetize or monetize people has been a big debate. Why is it unsolvable or do you think it is unsolvable? It becomes a very hard problem because at the scale of YouTube, what was the last stat that Susan quoted? Something like, 400 hours of video uploaded per minute to YouTube, you essentially have to rely on automated means to figure out what is okay to monetize um, versus what is not okay to monetize. And the thing that people don't realize about machine learning is that it is, these systems are fallible. Um, If you tune them aggressively towards fighting bad content, you take out a lot of good content. If on the other hand, you try not to take out good content, a lot of bad content slips through. This inherent, you know, like in computer science, this is the precision recall trade-off. This is unavoidable. And so you need a lot of training data. You need a lot of sophistication before it gets to a point where you can actually make good decisions. Again, to the point of small decisions leading to difficult outcomes, you know, my experience with YouTube was watching Jimmy Fallon videos. Mm-hmm. Like, that's sort of my thing. Yeah. And yeah. then you realize, oh, wait, like, all of humanity is on YouTube. And then you go, oh, wait, all of humanity is on right. YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a bit of a shock. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, what what I mean by really, really difficult problems to solve is you can't be too aggressive on both sides. If you're too aggressive about taking out bad content, you put good people out of business, out of their livelihoods. Right. Um, right. And right. it gets better over time, but it just got to a point where I said, you know, I want to do something else with my life. Did something, there were rumors that you were, of course, in the running to be CEO of Google. Was that something you wanted to do? Did you, and it was, was Sundar Pichai was selected, but is that something you had thought about? I don't think I was ever in the running. um, (laughs) I heard you are. (laughs) Um, So he became the head of Google in Mm -hmm. 2015, Mm -hmm. and he's done a fabulous job. It's a very difficult job, and uh, he's done well. So when you were looking at this, is there one thing that, is it, was it child pornography? What was the thing that sort of is like, this is not something, I want to try something new. I want to make something fresh. It's a lot of things. I would say the, the time and role. Um, you see a lot of friends leave. Um, in some ways, I would feel like, you know, the old man left standing. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and more and more of, uh, you know, my friends and people that I worked with for a decade uh, left. Um, and there were more and more difficult problems with not always easy uh, solutions. Um, and then there was also just this very simple thing of, I like creating. Mm-hmm. At the, you know, I was running a large team, but my happy moments came at the points where projects were being created, where we would work together as small teams to actually imagine something new um, and make it happen. To me, this is like the ultimate reward of being a computer scientist and to be at a time where such a thing is possible. If I were to make a new car, you know, only Elon can make new cars. Like, I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can imagine a new company. Um, and so that desire to just start over also came from this desire to just work with a small team, imagine a different world, and create a product that, you know, yes, I strongly hope will be beneficial for our customers and eventually humanity. All right, so explain what Neve is. You went to, I'm, I can talk about you going to Greylock, but you were there first, you parked yourself there and decided to do this. Talk about the thinking of, explain what your what Neva is and what why you went in this direction. Because there's been attempts at this before, but none of, you know, free free search is something everyone's gotten used to. So explain what Neva is going to do. So we all talked about how search was a really important problem for all of us, something that we turned to multiple times a day. It's our portal to information. It's our portal to other people. It's our portal to buying products. It's a lot of stuff. And it's deeply, deeply personal. And we have sort of come to accept the fact that search is what it is today, which is essentially mm-hmm. public search that's not personalized a whole lot, that doesn't know a lot of context about you, um, and one that doesn't really touch on the many personal services that we all use. You talked in one of your podcasts about how you have five email accounts. Uh, I have files in both Dropbox and G Suite. Um, Our world is complicated. And uh, so we wanted to, in some ways, go back to a simpler canvas for our product. We said, we want a product that serves our customers. To us, that meant that we would never show ads and would never ever monetize by any other means. Meaning data, personal data. Meaning and I data. want to get into that in a second. But so That's right. so you would so you people would pay for that privilege for people being able would to pay do that. for that privilege, but on the other hand, we were very firm that we would not show, you know, affiliate ads or we would uh, not bundle up the data and sell it to some other people. Like we start with the simple premise, um, this service serves you and you uh, and we have a business model and a set of principles um, that are all designed to make sure that we get to only serve you. And the second part of it is bringing the context of your personal life into the product. Um, you can attach your Gmail account, you can attach your Dropbox account. Um, we make it easy for you, I don't know, to find the PDF of your passport or your tax returns or the phone number of a friend um, or that long lost conversation sitting in some mailbox. They're like, we want you to be able to bring that if you want and have it be searchable um, for you. To us, this is a very different kind of service. Um, and we also wanted to make sure that we had a strong commitment to no tracking and privacy that went beyond the product. We created an extension um, that works to you know, prevent as much tracking as possible. Of course, other companies like Apple are doing this, but those were kind of the key elements that we had. And the thing to remember is, once you create a product like this, 
you have an enormous amount of intellectual freedom to think about what that product should be. A concrete example, if you're looking for a standing desk, I can make sure that I show you the best review sites for it. I'm not obligated to fill up the page with ads. Which was one, one, two things there. Google was not just obligated to fill the page with ads, but they also got into businesses, review businesses. They got, that, that was a second problematic right. situation right. for them. Right, right. Um, we can just focus on creating the best experience for you. And so it's more than take an existing search engine and take out the ads. It's really the freedom to truly rethink what this product can be about. Um, mm -hmm. And that's kind of our bet for why we think people are going to pay for it. That it's going to, they're not going to muck it up with maybe ads they don't realize they don't want or or information. I mean, another example, not, let me just be clear, Google's not the only one in the search business these days. It's also Amazon, which is an increasing player, but Amazon tends to show, show their products, the things that they're making, because they've also, besides being in the marketplace business, they're in the selling stuff business. Um, so you get, suddenly you get, I was looking for something uh, one of the away suitcases, I guess. But of course, they don't, away won't be there because they don't want to be copied. You immediately get a version of it that Amazon is making and selling somewhere. Same thing with Facebook. Um, they, they tend to orient you towards their things, which was, I think, the problem with Microsoft. That was the original problem with Microsoft is orienting you towards other things they're doing, uh, aside from the very the problems with the business itself, with the privacy. And so the idea is that you'll get, say, today I was looking for uh, baby gates. I just had another baby. And uh, and it was, yeah, And I, I, but I, when I was watching it, the stuff I was getting on Google was not the best information. I, it took me several ways to get to Wirecutter. You know what I mean? It was really, which was where I wanted to get in the first place. And it was really interesting what was surfacing. It was, I was fascinated by because I was just, it was a really interesting problem. Um, and on Amazon, the same thing. It was there, it was the products they wanted me to surface. And I could feel like I was in a store and being shoved to end caps all at the same time. To so, us, this uh, is the simplicity of the product. Um, mm -hmm. With It has one goal. Um, to show you the best results. If you if you need comparison sites, we would highlight the highest quality comparison sites. Um, if you needed places where uh, you can buy the product, we can show those to you. And you can have the confidence that there's no money exchanging hands in any of these pages that is genuinely an attempt um, to, to, to get things right. Amazon has this basic problem do you know with its you know with its merchants. Should the merchant offer you the best price or should they give $5 to Amazon so that they are right up on top? There's no easy answer to conflicts like this. Um, to us, this is the reason why we think that this is not only provides for peace of mind, um, but it can actually be super valuable for you. Just the freedom to focus on what are the great things that we should be showing Kara today. So I'm a more sophisticated user, but most people don't know that. Most people don't realize what they're getting and click. I think, how many pages do people go in? Not many, right? One? Maybe two, possibly never go into the second page. I'm guessing, I don't know. I do a lot of user interviews, Kara, and I have to say I am blown away by the degree of awareness and the degree of sophistication mm. that people have towards shopping. I spoke to this one, uh, you know, ice hockey mom in North Dakota who's like, yep, I search on Google, I search on Yahoo, I search on Bing. I know exactly what's going on. Let me tell you what to buy on Amazon, what not to buy on Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, and people are very, very aware. We run a lot of surveys. Um, people are very aware of how much ads are being targeted to them. Um, I think uh, the <laughs> average person in our country deserves more credit than we give them. To me, part of the reason for creating Neva is also creating that choice. Um, that yes, here is another option that lets you look at this problem very differently. Um, and it's strong motivation for us. If, you're a subs if we are a subscription service, we better be providing value for you month after month. Canceling us is just one click away. Um, it makes us hungry to want to do the right thing by you. Uh, I would give definitely a, give, give people a lot better. more credit. Yeah. Okay, give them a better service. I'm going to get into the pricing because poor people have to take the shitties, the, the the ad service, right? So that that one of the arguments that Google always makes and Facebook makes, and uh, they all do, they all do. They go, oh well, you know, you're talking about wealthy people who can afford to opt out of things, and I'm like, wealthy people do that all the time, obviously. But talk about that idea is that this is creates a you know a have and have not search engine, people who are protected from being tracked and people who or or being acted upon by advertisement 
and people who can't afford it. And therefore, um, so if people do know they're being played by a Google or an Amazon or whoever, or Facebook, how do you how do you deal with that? Because that's an obvious situation. Most of the world can't pay for a subscription service. Well, the first thing that I'll say is uh, innovation and business that has uplifted the lives of so many people in the world has operated on a paid model. Every single thing that's in front of you, the monitor, the phone, the microwave downstairs, a coffee mug, all started off as items that only the rich people could afford. Mm-hmm. But what scale brought is a drop in prices so that more and more people can afford these things. The allure clearly with the advertising model is that the product is free. But the long-term consequence of that is that the few winners get all the spoils off scale. And, you know, you can kind of do rough math around things like this. Yes, we will start at a certain point. But as we gain scale, we expect our prices to drop. And the other key aspect of our model is this also provides for a much more direct publisher alignment, something that I haven't talked about that much so far. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is that once we reach a certain revenue threshold, we very much intend to share part of our revenue with people that are creating great content. 100%. 100%. Explain that. I know, I know. Explain that. What, what it is, is there's been a lot of news organizations that feel that uh, that Google and Facebook and others take their information, sort of blackmail them into ha- having to be on there because they have to get people to sites uh, and then don't pay them. So they're essentially having everybody paint their fence for them. They're using their content. And I, 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 would, I think it's a pretty good argument, uh, but there's nothing they can do about it at the same time. To us, the power of a subscription model is that the value that we provide to users comes directly from publishers. There's a one-to-one content. Mm -hmm. Unlike in an advertising model where the incumbents can reasonably say, wait, we make money over here and you are news or you are reviews or you are this amazing blog over here, we show no ads when this blog is being shown. Um, We can take a very different approach. Um, Of course, when you're making zero dollars, there's not much to hand out, which is currently our state. We are a startup. But as we gain scale, this is something that we very much want to do. And again, I'm not talking about rocket science. This is your cable model. Mm -hmm. You know, you pay a certain monthly cable bill and you turn around and say who adds the most value um, and you distribute portions of your revenue. My point is that the subscription business model is a much more direct tie-in between the information that you consume in the search engine and the value that the publishers are creating. And that makes us approach it differently. You can also make choices, because we'll talk about in the next section about this sort of false false discussion debate over First Amendment. You can also make choices. We want the New York Times here. We're not going to have this person. We're not going to have that person. If you look at the top 10 searches right now on Facebook, uh, nine out of 10 are pretty right-wingy. You know what I mean? You don't get, you don't actually get what, is high quality or even diverse. You don't get diverse even, um, which is fascinating since the right wing always says they're not heard, but they are indeed. So right now, let's talk about Neva itself. So you're using Bing for search. You're using, uh, let's go through this. You're using, Bing is Microsoft's service that you competed against for years, uh, which which people, it's interesting because people tend to sort of insult Microsoft for both search and uh, their phone, but I thought their phone was pretty good and it just was late and it was too late uh, to compete. Uh, And their search is pretty good, actually. Not as good as Google's, but because it's not as big, but still not bad. So you have to have a search. You have to have a search element. So how does that come into it? Talk about how that is. Because do you, you, we're going to get into privacy also, but you use Apple for Maps, Google, Explain what you're using. Yeah. Um, So we use a number of services, definitely use Bing, definitely use um, Apple Maps. Um, We also use this company called Intrinio for stock information. Um, We have another relationship for for weather information. The first thing that I'll say here is that, first of all, I'm glad Bing exists. It's an alternative for all of us. It pushes Google to innovate. And they also have um, a pretty partner-friendly API approach, um, which obviously benefits us. The first thing is, when you're a startup of 25 people taking on a problem that is currently being solved by over 5,000 people and like a huge amount of money, you need to approach things with humility. 
there are only certain things that you can build and, you know, certain things that you cannot. But the mentality that Vivek, my co-founder and I bring to this is, you know, providing you with the best product is our responsibility. What I mean by that is we will build whatever it takes to create a great product. When it comes to personal data, all the infrastructure, the indexing and the serving systems are built by my team. Um, we are the ones that write the software for what is finally presented as the search result page to you. And wherever there are gaps in quality, we identify them um, and we go and fix them. So you're never going to hear us offer you know, any provider that we rely on as an excuse for why you don't have a great product. I personally look at the feedback that comes from all our users. We are a small company and anytime there is a problem, I cringe because I'm like, we can be better. Um, we can be better than this. So I would say we take full ownership and responsibility for quality um, and we are product people. Mm -hmm. We will get better at this day in and day but, out. But Let's be clear, and I want to talk about in the next section, is that you collect personal data, including IP addresses, and Bing gets these. Is that correct? Or they, they get some of it, or what? So we are very careful in our relationship with all third-party providers that they do not get personally identifiable data. As a matter of policy, like within Neva itself, we don't log the full IP. Um, you almost certainly know that your IP address is pretty much a dead giveaway for your house because it doesn't change that often. So we drop the last octet and we don't um, we don't save it in any in any of our logs. Similarly, if we get location from a phone, we falsify it to like a square kilometer radius so that you know individual people cannot be um, cannot be identified. And so we take we you know we take care of that part of privacy. Um, and the providers that we work with, yes, they provide services for us, but we make sure that they do not get your personal search history or your personal maps history and things like that. All right, but when we get back, I'd like to talk about this idea of collecting personal data. It's unavoidable, I think, but you are creating personal history, uh, histories of people, search histories, and is there any way out of that? And is it can it become problematic for privacy? We're here with Sridhar Ramaswamy. Uh, he is the co-founder of Nevi. He's a former Google executive. He's trying to compete with Google, essentially. We'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. We're here with Sridhar Ramaswamy, the co-founder of Neva. He is a former Google executive, in fact, a top Google executive who was in charge of things like ads, the, the major businesses of, of Google. And now he started Neva uh, with, was it $3.7 million? Is that correct? 37 and a half. Some, and you're using some of your own money. Uh, you work for Google. I'm assuming you're very wealthy too. But one of the things you're doing is creating uh, search histories for users. I don't think it's, it's impossible not to, to give them a good service, correct? Talk about that idea of the private nature of the search service overall. If you are collecting information about people, how do you how do you balance those things? So I think there has been uh, sort of this unfortunate mixing up of <laughs> privacy with not collecting any data at all. You know, when we talk about you being able to connect your uh, Gmail accounts to Neva. Definitionally, mm -hmm. we know things about your personal right. life. But I think the privacy principle that we enshrine in Neva and that we try to follow very religiously is your data is yours. 
And um, yes, we use search history as a convenience for you. This, in our opinion, is no different from, say, like, you know, um, a shopping app that you use that knows the previous products that you've that you've bought. Um, or Netflix. Also, or Netflix like knowing your watch history um, yeah. and just yeah. making better recommendations. Um, but our belief is that the business model and the strong principles that come with how your data is going to be used is the guarantee that we are providing. Having said that, there are, you know, queries that are awkward and you don't really want associated even with your search history. We offer an incognito mode um, for that. Is it like, you know, you get a headache, you're like, ah, oh, what does this headache mean? I don't really want that sitting sitting in my search history. You can open up Neva in an incognito mode. Our engineers came up with a clever solution um, for how a signed in user can transition into having this incognito window that can talk to Neva without anything at all being recorded. Include, and I'll say including, this, say, the Comcast of the world following you or the providers, because that's another, people don't realize that providers know where you're going to. So uh, in, in that case, for example, the connection that you have with Neva is on HTTPS. It is secure, it's mm -hmm. encrypted, so intermediaries mm -hmm. cannot save it. Um, and the final thing that I'll say is, this is the beauty of a consumer-first, customer-first product. If there is a strong desire to have a product that also remembers no search history, but has the other context, you would absolutely make this. Because uh, the, the search history lets us do things like autocomplete of your queries when you're typing the same query. Again, easier. And it's not particularly hard for us to create an option where it's like where we remember no search history. Um, and by the way, we also decided early on that we would never keep any logs for more than 90 days. So everything that you do beyond 90 days is deleted. Again, if some users come to us and say, no, I want that to be 180, we'll add that option. But our default is you don't have to worry about this. And this is for all users. Their entire history just vanishes after 90 days. All right. One of the, someone wrote me uh, when I was talking talking to various people about doing this interview. Uh, someone wrote me, making advertising the boogeyman is missing the point. Data collection, targeting, and subsequent manipulation is, is the problem. And Google and Facebook do say they don't sell user data. Now, you're not going to be selling this data. You're going to be using this data in order to give a better experience, which is, I think, Different. Just within the context of search, just in the context mm -hmm. of making your product better, the data goes nowhere else. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and there's obviously with a model like ours, there's no question of selling any data whatsoever. That's what Facebook and Google claim. We don't sell the data, but really they sell insights into the data uh, is what they're doing. I mean, they make this really weird little distinction that, that's that kind of laughable. We on, would never do, for example, in this kind of a formula, even doing a product like Trends is not something that we would do um, because we're mm -hmm. like explain you know, that why because um, it's because we don't want to create artificial distinctions about user data. We don't want you to say, well, this level of granularity is going to be used, but that level is not going to be. Um, you know, for us, your comfort comes from the fact that literally it's only subscriptions that we mm -hmm. make money off of. There are no other products. Should there be a business where there's no search history? At all, I mean, look, uh, DuckDuckGo has that. Um, they have an ad business, but it's uh, but it's not it's contextual ads. Um, how do you you look, you see someone like that who's been trying really hard to compete with Google? People don't. There's no pickup on it. Um, what, why is that? Why do you imagine there's not? And it's it's a good service, but nobody goes there. I mean, I mean, a lot of I mean, it's it's look one percent does I think or something. Like that. So it's not tiny, but it's certainly difficult to compete with the larger Google sort of work, essentially. To me, it all comes down to how compelling the product is. Um, and uh, Dr. Go, you know this, you said this, in fact, does show ads. And the privacy is a good add-on to that. But what we are promising is that for this very important function of search, a product that's focused on you, a product that can innovate in areas that benefit you, for example, in shopping, in a way that there is not quite that incentive for the other folks. Is that sufficient value? To me, that's like the big open challenge of Neva for, you know, for me and the rest of the team. Mm -hmm. And so when you're thinking about the idea of an advertising-less world, can it get big? I mean, you look at others who have tried different things, and there's been competitor social networks um, that have tried uh, different things, some of them very early on. Path was one of them. How difficult 
will it be to get people in this state of mind? I mean, you're using the idea of no ads. No ads is pretty much your marketing tactic here. Uh, there's not complete lack of privacy because they, you need people's information in order to give them a product, essentially. Um, how do you, what is, do you think, the best, I don't want to say, marketing for this thing? What is, what is the reason I pay you $10 a month or whoever, however much it's going to be uh, initially? What is the argument you're, from your perspective to the average consumer to get them to move off of things that are bad for them, essentially? Well, um, our core principles continue to be like a search product that works for you, the ability to bring in um, your personal data so you don't have to go to many different places to be searching for it. And in the areas that I talked about, like commercial queries, we want you to feel like or we want you to have a truly better product experience that is partly facilitated by the model and the lack of pressure with respect to showing ads. Um, we have to create a product that is truly better. Um, if we are merely search as it exists today without ads, I think we are in trouble in the long term. Mm -hmm. But our bet is that um, this actually opens the door to a lot more innovation in the product, some of which we have already done. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is there's been a lot of products like this. That, yeah, I just recently read about Hey.com, which you've heard about, which right. their, little, their fight with Apple. When you think about this, there's attempts to do this. And this is an email fighting the Gmail, Gmail, you know, or even the App Store. They were in a fight with the App Store. There are big players here yep. that are, have really sort of sucked up, as you said, all the oxygen in the room. How difficult it is to up on that? Or, you, you can create a nice little business, but how do you actually shift the entire business away from, which it's become an exploitative situation for large companies. You know, when again, when you're a startup, you have to focus on the now. You can have all the grand concepts that you want for the distant future, um, but you have to create value user by user. We are at hundreds of users. Our sort of aspiration is to get to thousands of users loving our product. Um, so these steps come very small. Uh, to a certain extent, you know, if you talk about like massive market share on day one, you basically set yourself up for failure. Um, I listened to the conversation that you had uh, with Jason and the, the benefits of smallness. Um, to me, big things come from having the right principles, like really crafting your solution and then trusting that it will scale. I don't think there is a way to hurry this through. All right, what's the reaction from Google itself, people that are there? You've brought in a few people, I think Vivek came over. What do you, um, how are they looking at this? Do they look at you like, now we're going to have to kill him or God wishes us, <laughs> you know, God, we're in this Borg here, we're running the Death Star and it's not fun running the Death Star anymore or I, that's a joke, a little bit of a joke. Um, actually, the Death Star is the Trump campaign, I forgot. Um, like they, that was they call themselves. They self dubbed themselves that. Um, but how do you? How do you? What was the reaction when you did this? Because you're coming right at their business, their main business, and you were a long time and very high ranking executive there. I haven't had a lot of conversations with senior folks um, about mm -hmm. this. My personal take is that alternative viewpoints are important, um, and. Uh, uh, I made a lot of decisions, even for Google, that have gotten to the heart of matter. I was the person that led the decision to make shopping an all-paid property. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by business models and alternative voices. Um, mm -hmm. So I would say this is actually a good thing for Google, that someone is right. thinking about a different way of approaching this uh, problem. And, you know, we have a long road ahead. Um, but I think ideas are important. Ideas are important for our society, for the industry. Um, and so I'm excited to be trying it. And I obviously have a lot of friends, you know, who call me and say, wow, that's bold, but I'm glad you're doing it. And I hope that's the reaction that folks have. What reaction would you have if you were still at Google and someone did this? What would you go, good luck or, oy, that's a that's a tough one. If you were still there, because there, you know, there, there hasn't been, one of the things I say in a lot of speeches is I go, think about the last time there was a search engine. There, there wasn't. DuckDuckGo is it, pretty much, or Bing sort of got, I mean, Microsoft got, had a hard time. Everybody, same thing with, uh, with um, commerce. Walmart's having a hard time. You know what I mean? Like, and there hasn't been a new fresh thing. Same thing, when's the last social media company? Snap in 2011, you know, and they're having a hard time. 
keeping up. And as innovative as they are, for example, and I find them to be very innovative. So you look at these companies, did you, how do you push against this amount of, it's not a duopoly, it's something else, without having intervention by the government, for example. You've had Yelp coming at Google for years and years, and, you know, it's sort of like, they keep banging on the door, and suddenly now a lot of people are listening. How do you, uh, how does it, how does it ever change besides with innovation? Do you think regulation is necessary? You know, I'm not um, an expert on things like antitrust, uh, Mm -hmm. but I do obviously read about it. I'm a keen fan of history about, you know, how AT&T got to be where it was um, and how it was subsequently broken down, the innovations that, that, you know, came out from that and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do strongly think, and your other guests have said this as well, that the current dogma behind antitrust, that it somehow has to be tied to consumer price harm, is completely out of date with the reality that we live in today. Because you essentially get a free check if you are a free service. You know, the law apparently is not applicable. You know, if you go back and look at the original intent, it was it was consumer harm. But there was also this element of what's right for society. Um, mm-hmm. What I find bad about the current situation is that a lot of us don't trust the one body that is the one and only collective bargainer for all of us. That's our government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And to me, like, they kind of need to wake up and say, technology is innovated. Companies have innovated. We are where we are today. Um, and how should we think about this very important element of antitrust that we know is important for the long-term health of the country? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I just think there needs to be just a lot more innovative thinking in this space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. You're right. We don't. The, 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 our lawyer is just terrible. You know what I mean? It's so funny. I mean, the, the society's lawyer is just terrible. And one of the things is that they are also um, impacted by lobbying. These companies have enormous amounts of money, um, although I think less so than, say, a cigarette company did for many years. I, I do think the, the pernicious effects of lobbying are clear, but they're more transparent than ever before. Um, but the fact of the matter is, the, the, the keeping up with the changes is really the difficulty. I talk to people at the Justice Department, I talk to the FTC, and they're like, by the time we get to it, they're fast past us. Even if we're going to change the concept of, say, antitrust or fees, or they're, it's too, it's moving too fast. And the other part is, of course, this is a free product, and and it's not. You can't necessarily prove consumer harm to something people get for free. Um, except to say that we're a lot of cheap... What I, what I always say is we're cheap dates to these tech companies. They get everything and we get, you know, a map or whatever. Um, the bar for with, the government is not consumer harm. The bar for the government mm-hmm. is what's right for society. Our right, laws right. need to reflect that. So when you look at this sort of tech lash and what's coming, I do see, you know, you see it building on the right and the left and it depends on where you're sitting. The, the right is convinced they're not being heard, even though I think they are. Um, but at the heart of all of these arguments is power, is the idea that these companies have enormous power over us in ways that we never made that deal when it started. Um, and you go back a long ways. Do you imagine that, in a, you know, a lot of people are hoping innovation will get us out of this, that, that, that mighty companies end up falling eventually, just like you said with AT&T or the railroad industry or whatever. But do you think there's, there's enough uh, ability to innovate to take the stranglehold these companies have on us? Is that, is, that a, is that an impossible rock to push up a hill? I'd say it's a lot of, it's a lot of things. Uh, you know, certainly I set store by innovation. That's the reason why I started mm-hmm. Neva. I set store in uh, principles. Um, and I actually uh, have a lot of belief in the inherent smartness of people. Um, We can easily dismiss things and say like, oh, people will never get off of free products or do what's right for them. But in my mind, if you create options, you are going to be surprised by uh, outcomes. Um, And, you know, that in combination with the government playing its role of thinking again about what's right for society, thinking about, hey, what do we do in kind of this post-industrial environment about just employment, things like that. I think that that will hopefully create the next wave of innovation for us. 
So when you look back at your career, when you look at the impact of tech, do you think it, you know, in general, you could say it's a net plus. You could say electricity is a net plus. You know, there's all kinds of, but the damage. How do people feel, you know, you are at the top echelons of this. Is there a shift in people's thinking about what have we wrought? Do you feel like there's a there's a movement? I do feel at the at the lower levels that people are saying, I I don't know, you know, uh, one of the things my goals is is people who work at Facebook is do you really want to do this? Is this what is this what you were meant to put on the planet to do kind of thing? Um, I think that's pretty much my entire goal is to make people think about that. Do you think there is a shift in mentality in Silicon Valley, or does it just have to go somewhere else? Should there be another Silicon Valley or or another place? a uh, place of innovation. Um, do you imagine there's a, a change in the attitude? You know, just with my personality and background, I tend to question a lot of stuff. Um, so I was not one of those people that said that everything tech-related was automatically the right thing to do. I'm not super active on social media. I was militantly against my children being active on social media when they were, you know, when they were young. And so I do think that we all need to take a rational and hard look at what are the benefits that tech is providing us and take what's the best. It turns out that, you know, people in any particular industry always like to proclaim themselves as the next messiah. Um, Again, as a fan of history, people that invented newspapers, people that invented the radio, people that invented TV, all thought they were going to revolutionize the world, even movies. Um, So I think that kind of religion goes hand in hand with new technologies, it gives purpose. Um, But it's up to the rest of us to say, you know, we'll take what's good and we'll stay away from what's not so great for us. Um, And again, what the government can do is create an environment in which there is competition, in which there are choices. I think at that point, you can trust people to take good decisions. And last question, uh, you yourself are an immigrant and there's been a lot of um, from India um, and so many people in Silicon Valley are. Do you feel like we're at the right place in bringing in more voices, not just in this country, but through, throughout the world? What what do you think has to happen um, in that area? Because one of the great um, parts of tech is that diversity of thought. And I didn't even get into women and people of color in this yeah. discussion. But how do you preserve that? going forward? Because tech has been a largely white uh, male point of view. How do you change that? Slowly. I'm not sure there are like immediate answers uh, within the context of my startup, for example. You know, eight out of our 28 folks um, are uh, are women. And that's that's still not a good enough number. I have an all-male board. And so, you know, I think there needs to be uh, female representation in my board. Yeah, we are a startup, but, you know, as we grow... These are things that we all need to make uh, personal commitments to. Um, I was the uh, um, sort of the the product head of uh, diversity when I was at Google, and it was a very hard problem um, to increase the amount of women, to increase the number of uh, minorities um, that we had in uh, um, in our teams. And uh, immigration is one part of it. Um, But I don't think we do a great job in tech to create opportunities um, for Blacks or Hispanics. Um, I think that is very much something that takes reflection and and commitment. And I think we need to do more of it. All right, last question. So people can get this now. Is it free for the, until the end of the year? What's the, I mean, starting a pandemic, congratulations on that one. But um, (laughs) actually, you know what? Google started in a downturn. So, yeah, they did um, people can. How can people use Neve if they want to try it out? So um, we are in a closed beta. As I said, we are uh, um, <clears throat> we are at hundreds of users, adding like a few hundred per month. Um, you can go to neva.co, n e e v a dot c o to sign up for our waitlist. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at uh, at nevaco, um, and we hope to rapidly expand uh, the number of folks that are testing the product. Um, and yes, it's free through the through the end of the year. And beyond that, we'll obviously make sure that we have a long trial period um, and so on so folks can try the product and feel like they're getting value from it. 
And we'd love to have you try the product at, uh, at some I point. I will. Too. Are you kidding? I just did hay. It's really, I have a lot of feedback for the hay people. So I have a lot of feedback for you. And, sure and, you and uh, Sridhar, if you spy on me, I will find a way to, to hurt you badly. Um, anyway, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's a really interesting question of whether uh, innovation combined with you know, smart regulation and other things and attitude of people can change things. And I really appreciate uh, you coming here. Um, and being one of the last shows uh, for Recode Decode, actually. Anyway, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, as is at Hey Hey ESJ. And again, Tridar, to find Neva it, on Twitter, it's is what? Nevaco? Nevaco, N-E-V-A-C-O. And online? And uh, Neva.co. Co. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend and make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants, which uh, just started a brand new season about Netflix. Uh, speaking of uh, companies that have a subscription service that have done pretty well, just search them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Special thanks to Squadcast.fm. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday for my final new episode of this show. Tune in then. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change... Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.